So I hope you're doing well wherever you are. We're returning to the 16th chapter of John's Gospel. We've been in John's Gospel now for the better part of two years, and we're coming to the end of a very significant part of John's Gospel. It's called the Farewell Discourse, where Jesus is giving final instructions and preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. So uh, we're going to pick up there. If you remember just last week here towards the end of the 16th chapter, Jesus warned them. He said, in a little while, you won't see me anymore. But in a little while, you will see me. Remember, they weren't really clear on what he was saying. But he did promise them that though they would experience sorrow and lament, their sorrow would be turned into joy, a joy that no one could take away from them. So this is where we're going to pick up now, beginning with verse 25 through verse 33. And Sherry Osborne will read the scripture for us this morning. Hi, Colonial. I am Sherry Osborne. I've been attending Colonial since 1984. I've raised my children here, and I have wonderful memories of all the Christmas and Easter season and all the different events that we attended, the walk to the manger. Um, I think the memory that means the most to me with Colonial is the fact that in 2005, Colonial had the whole congregation read through the Bible. I committed to that, and I'm still doing it now, and it's been a life changer, and it also made me fall in love with the Word of God. I'm thrilled to attend Colonial because when you give to Colonial, you are giving to a church that preaches the Word of God from the pulpit, that teaches the Word of God and the teachers, and the youth leaders that lead with the Word of God. Um, Colonial not only helps its own neighborhood locally, but it reaches out across the world to the mission field and at plants missions in other countries and the missionaries that we support. And um, I'm just really proud to be uh, not only a giver to Colonial, an attendee of Colonial, but also I've been a recipient of their generosity. And it's just wonderful to have a church that knows that they love you and care for you. Today, our scripture reading comes from the book of John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world 
you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. All right, let's jump into it. My message today is entitled, Take Heart. And it will fall under three subheadings. Number one, the final synopsis. Number two, a little faith is better than none. And number three, a prediction and a proclamation. We're just walking through the text, all right? So let's begin with uh, the final synopsis. So as you know, as I mentioned briefly just a second ago, uh, we're, con- we're coming to the end of this profound time of teaching. We're going to see Jesus pray. The whole 17th chapter is the high priestly prayer where he prays, and we'll spend some significant time there. But uh, in terms of his teaching ministry for John's gospel, here's kind of where it comes to an end at the end of chapter 16. And so Jesus will really be, you know, giving his final synopsis, his final uh, summary. So it, it begins in verse 25, where Jesus looks back to what he just said. He said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. You know, I think Jesus says this because he can tell that his disciples are struggling to keep up. They're struggling to understand what he's been saying. And he acknowledges that it's really been for their own good that he has spoken to them in figures of speech. We know he's, you know, he's talking about parables and metaphors and different ways that he's been teaching them. These parables and metaphors still have so much terrific, powerful value for us today, 2,000 years later. But we have to remember that so much of what Jesus needs to teach them and what they'll need to learn and understand is impossible for them to really understand until they get through the cross and the resurrection, the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's why for good reason, Jesus thus far has taught them with parables and figures of speech. But he says in verse 26 that the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And this hour, I think, that he's referring to is the coming of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, will bear witness about Jesus. He will speak only what he hears from Jesus. He will lead the disciples into all the truth. And so perfect is the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says, it's my teaching. I will speak to you through the Holy Spirit and tell you plainly about the Father. And this really is exactly what happens, and that's how we have the four Gospels. That's how we have the New Testament, where we learn so much of the profundity of the mysteries of God in the New Testament. All right, so Jesus goes on to point to that day. You know, he's pointing to the future. He's a time that is coming, and this time will be marked by something very significant, that in that day, in that time, The disciples will pray in my name. Jesus says, you will pray in my name. And he's spoken about this new kind of prayer multiple times here in the farewell discourse. Just a reminder in John 14, 13 and 14, Jesus states, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Hold that thought. So then just last week, John 16, 23, Jesus said this again. He said, in that day, You will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And now once again in verse 26 and 27, Jesus states, In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, I just showed you three passages in short order there where Jesus is commanding, inviting his disciples in that day, in the time that is coming, to pray in my name. Now, whenever you read scripture, you look for repetition, and whatever you find repetition, that represents emphasis. This is a really big deal. Uh, It is a key lesson and a key takeaway for his students that we are to pray in Jesus' name. Now, if you're paying attention in the text that we just read, uh, there's really two ways to pray in the name of Jesus that Jesus uh, has taught us. First, the disciples can pray directly to Jesus invoking his name as they make their request. And Jesus says, I will hear your prayer. Remember, don't, don't ever say Jesus never claimed to be God, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if somebody hears your prayers, that's God, right? Jesus says he will hear their prayer and he will act upon their request for the glory of the Father, all right? The second way to pray in his name is to pray directly to the Father, And we get the sense that this would be the norm and maybe praying directly to Jesus might be the exception. Why? Well, because twice here at the end of his teaching, Jesus emphasizes that the disciples in that day will no longer need to ask Jesus, but instead will have access directly to the Father. And that's a really big deal. We touched on that a bit last week. Just remember, when Jesus dies on the cross as the atonement for our sins and he rises on the third day, He reconciles us to the Father. Now, when a pastor says that, we may interpret the gospel to suggest that God was really angry and had already turned away from his sinful creation. But that is actually not consistent with what Jesus has revealed in the gospel of John. Remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God's love is never changing. Sin didn't change God. Sin changed us. Sin corrupted our hearts and led us to hide from the Father. Well, again, we talked about that at the end of the message last week. So here again in John 16, even as Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray in his name, he makes sure that they understand that Jesus is not asking, hey, pray in my name and I'll go butter up the angry God. You know, like, I'll smooth it over for you. That's not what he's saying. Not at all. He says, the Father himself loves you. But notice why the Father now looks so lovingly upon the disciples and welcomes their prayers. First, the Father loves the disciples because they have loved Jesus. And that makes sense, right? I mean, just think about this. If you truly love my children, you are always welcome in my home. True story. You may only tolerate me, but if you truly love my children, you are most welcome. Why? Well, you know why. Nothing warms the heart of a parent like seeing people love their children. I am forever grateful for colonial preschool teachers and all the elementary, middle school, and high school teachers, all the the coaches, uh, all the children and youth staff here at Colonial. So many of you, uh, members of our church, who have loved my four children 
in such a powerful and beautiful way in all the years that we've been here. Uh, you honor me when you love my children. However, there's two sides to that coin, right? You dishonor me if you're hateful to my children. Don't tell me that you love me and then diss on my kids, right? <laughs> so what is true in the physical points beyond to the spiritual. What I know as a human father is all that more true with our heavenly father. So here in John 16, Jesus reveals the heart of his father. The father's love for the son is perfect. It is pure. So all those who love the son are loved by the father. You know, the great reformer, John Calvin writes, we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son. And I think that's exactly what Jesus just said. Pray in my name. It pleases the father. He it, it loves and is quick to hear those who love his son. Uh, now, the other factor of the father's love for the disciples is this. They have believed that Jesus came from God. If the disciples had loved Jesus only as a good man, but failed to believe his teaching, we get the sense that the father would have been pretty offended by that. I mean, the father went through great lengths to send his son and to reveal to the world who his son was. Jesus did not come into the world teaching and performing miracles on his own merit. Jesus came as the son of the father. And at all times, as you know, as we've gone through the gospel of John, at all times, Jesus is speaking on behalf of the father, speaking only what he hears from the father, pointing people back to the father. That said, I, it must have been pretty hard at times for the disciples to believe that this homeless Nazarene was actually the son of God. I mean, think about that. Think just remember how counterintuitive it is for Jewish men to believe that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. But it was their willingness to believe that Jesus came from God and their love for Jesus that positioned them to be loved and heard by the Father as they prayed in Jesus' name. Now, I have unpacked this notion of praying in Jesus' name in former messages, but I, I want to come back and just emphasize first that praying in the name of Jesus is for those who love Jesus and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I, I'm not suggesting that you must manufacture some deep, emotional, romantic kind of feelings towards Jesus. Just a love for the Lamb who gave his life for us while we were still sinners. And I'm not suggesting that we have to have this rock-solid belief that is without a shred of doubt. I mean, we'll see very clearly the disciples were, didn't have that much rock-solid conviction at all. They struggled with doubt as well. But then, as we approach the Father, let us also remember that as we pray in the name of Jesus, it's not just a tagline that we throw on to get whatever we want. Heaven forbid, you know that's not true. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, it means at least a couple things. Number one... When we approach God in prayer, we invoke the merits of God's Son. You know, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're, we're praying, we're approaching God based on the merits of His Son. We never approach God on our own merit, as if we have any, right? I mean, we shouldn't even be able to approach a holy and just God. The only way that we can approach God is through the merits of His Son. That really is... Why Jesus says, invoke my name, pray in my name, pray through our relationship. 
Uh, why? B- because the atoning work of Jesus on the cross reconciles our souls to the holy and just God who is there, who is the Father. So we approach God on the merits of his Son, on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Number two, to pray in Jesus' name is to present yourself as a citizen of King Jesus. Right? You, when, when, you, when you're approaching God now, you, you, come as, uh, you come on behalf of the king. And if you, if you ever approach a court on behalf of somebody else, you come in that person's name. Uh, you come representing that person and that person's interest. Uh, that is to say, when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray as those who have received citizenship in the kingdom of Christ, and we stand before Almighty God as an emissary of the king. So our request should be in alignment with the king and his kingdom values, right? I mean, we don't just come before God with all of our selfishness, tag on the name of Jesus, and somehow think, you know, that pleases God with our prayers. I mean, we come on our Lord's merit, and we come under his banner wearing his uniform, belonging to him as one who belongs to his kingdom. So our requests and our hearts need to be aligned with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then third, to invoke the name of Jesus before the Father is to set aside our agenda and our glory for the sake of our Lord's agenda and his glory. It is to seek first the kingdom of God, trusting that our Father knows what we need and that all these things will be given unto you. Remember this in Matthew 6. So when we begin... And end our prayers in Jesus' name. Uh, we are making our request before God, all the while trusting that the outcome, to you know, is is left to the will and wisdom of Jesus. <laughs> so, it, we we bring our request, we bring our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, but we yield. You know, we're we're yielding to the perfect will and providence of King Jesus, and. Uh, that's at least some of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. I remember uh, when I was a, I guess I was a freshman in uh, Wake Forest University. I was in my first New Testament class, Dr. Charles Talbert. And we were talking about this, and he said, really, three of the most mysterious, powerful realities in all the New Testament, three words are in my name. So I, I think there's a lot more that we could talk about, but let's move on. That's at least some of what it means to pray in my name. One more thing. You know, I regularly hear people pray in his name, in your son's name, in the name of our Lord, and so on. And I suspect God understands our intent and God is merciful. But if I might be so bold as to suggest that we simply pray as Jesus invited us to pray, pray in Jesus' name. Say his name, Jesus. There's power in that name. As Calvin said, we have the heart of God the moment we set before him the name of his son. Invoke the name of Jesus. It is an honor and a privilege for those who love Jesus and believe him to be the son of God. Okay, now following his instructions on prayer, Jesus provides really a a final summary in many respects. In verse 28, he says, I came from the father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. That's a loaded sentence right there. In one sentence, Jesus summarizes his pre-existence with the Father, the incarnation, the cross and the resurrection, and his ascension. In one sentence. Yeah, I could never do that. I need eight pages, right? So, so this final synopsis, this final summary, 
pictures the coming down and rising up of God's only son. And in this picture that he just gave us in verse 28 will establish the entire foundation of what we call Christology, right? Of who Jesus is, that Jesus preexisted with the father, came into the world in the incarnation, suffered and died. Our creed says he descended into hell that to, just to liberate and preach the gospel, even to those who were in the place of the dead. And then he ascends back to the father. It's called exaltation Christology. It's a really big deal in the world of theology. And it's really this sentence, this teaching that forms the prologue of John's gospel, right? This is where John has the authority to say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's just a beautiful way of summarizing what Jesus just said in verse 28. Now, again, we spent weeks unpacking these verses and their implications of, of the preexistence of Christ, his incarnation and so on. But needless to say, what Jesus just said is not simple. It's profound. It's a profound thing he just said, and particularly to the group he said it, when he said it here, just before he is betrayed into the hands of sinful men and crucified. So how did the 11 respond to what Jesus just said? Did you notice this? That leads me to my second subheading. <laughs> a little faith is better than none. So in verse 29 and 30, the disciples respond to what Jesus just said. They say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, initially, that seems like a really like we're making some ground with the disciples, right? They just needed Jesus to speak plainly. And now that he told them that he came from the father, came into the world, is leaving the world and returning the father. Well, now everything's crystal clear. Now they get it. And now they believe that Jesus came from God. <laughs> is that what just happened? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what happened. In fact, I'm pretty sure the disciples are not responding to anything Jesus just said at all. <laughs> Remember last week, maybe you need to go back and watch last week or just go back and read a couple of verses earlier here in John 16. But Jesus said, you know, in a little while you will not see me and then in a little while you will see me. And they're like, what does this mean in a little while? So if you recall then in verse 19, John records that Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So Jesus addressed their question before they even asked the question. And this is why the disciples now believe that Jesus came from God. The disciples are amazed that Jesus could read their hearts, maybe read their minds and address their question without them asking. Listen again to what they said. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. You see it now? It is because they perceive Jesus to be omniscient, a mind reader, a heart reader. This is why they now believe that he came from God. And I'm pretty sure they just missed the whole final synopsis. But hey, a little faith is better than none. And once again, I pictured Jesus with a little smile, kind of a sad smile on his face. You know, these men are honest they're simple men they're trying hard to understand they're 
They're not going to get it. Not, not yet. They're going to get it after the cross and the empty tomb, the ascension, when the Holy Spirit comes and leads them into all the truth. But they love Jesus, and now they can say that they believe that he has come from God. These dear men. These dear, difficult, and dense disciples, just like us, right? I mean, they kind of believe. And it's a little sad for Jesus, probably, because after all of his profound teaching, the only thing that seems to impress them is that Jesus knows their hearts even before they ask their questions. And although this little expression of faith is encouraging, these men are about to face a storm that will utterly demolish for a while what little faith that they have. This is why Jesus responds in verse 31. He says, do you now believe? I suspect that sentence might read better like this. You believe now, do you? I mean, I don't think Jesus is questioning the disciples' sincerity, but he's pointing out that this little moment of conviction will not withstand the horrors that are about to come. Jesus goes on, he says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. This prediction must have demolished the disciples and caused even more confusion and dismay. I mean, why would Jesus say such a thing immediately following their bold assertion of faith that he came from God? I mean, why isn't he happy about that? The disciples were feeling confident at that moment. And Jesus looked right beyond them and saw the loneliness that awaited him. These disciples, hey, they're going to go on and do great things. Of that, our Lord has no doubt. The Father is revealed through the Spirit to the Son. How faithful these chosen ones of him will be when the Holy Spirit comes. But for now, on this night, they will all scatter. Jesus will walk this road of suffering alone. The great Alexander McLaren reflects on this. He writes, Jesus was the loneliest man who ever lived. All other forms of human solitude were concentrated in his. He knew the pain of unappreciated aims, unaccepted love, unbelieved teachings, a heart thrown back on itself. No man understood him. No man knew him. No man deeply and thoroughly loved him or sympathized with him. And he dwelt apart. He felt the pain of solitude more sharply than sinful men do. Perfect purity is keenly susceptible. A heart fully charged with love is wounded sore when the love is thrown back. And all the more sorely, the more unselfish it is. Solitude was no small part of the pain of Christ's passion. The bitterness of the cup that he drank had for not the least bitter of its ingredients the sense that he drank it alone. Church, I want you to take that to heart. You know, I mean, there's a great victory at the end of our text. And Jesus says, I've overcome the world. And, and we live on the backside of, of the grave and the resurrection and the ascension. But as, as we come to the end of 16, as we move into this very serious time of this high priestly prayer and then the passion, you know, I want you to remember to walk with Jesus in time and in step with him where he's at, especially right now. Why? 
Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you're all alone in your faith sometimes? I mean, have you ever felt like the whole world is having a great time doing whatever they want to do while you and you alone are trying to faithfully follow Christ and it's hard, right? I often felt that way when I was in college. You know, my friends were all at parties on Friday nights and I was often alone in my room because my conscience, my Christian conscience would not allow me to live that lifestyle. Then on Sunday mornings, when all my classmates were asleep in their dorm rooms, I was driving 45 minutes to serve at a local church where I would spend the entire day and return later that evening. I mean, I think a lot of us who have really sought to follow Christ in our lives can testify that sometimes doing the right thing means standing alone. Sometimes the road of virtue means taking a path less traveled, and I will tell you, it's hard. And loneliness is a killer. I suspect anyone who's tried and cared seriously to follow Jesus can relate with what I'm talking about. But here, church, is where we take heart. It's not just that Jesus overcomes. It's that Jesus understands. We have a God who took on our flesh and has gone before us. He understands. He understands solitude and loneliness and isolation more than you do. More than any of us could possibly even comprehend. And I hope you can hear that ache in his heart because it's right there in our text. Even those closest to Jesus will abandon him. They will scatter. But Jesus presses on knowing that ultimately he's never alone. He goes on to say in verse 32, yet I'm not alone for the father is with me. This was always the comfort of Jesus. Every second of his life, Jesus knew the father was with him until the end. You see, the father has been and will be with Jesus through every trial, all the torture. But then at some point on the cross, the most horrifying thing happens. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's this moment we believe and the, the only way we can understand this is that the father turns his face away from the son. It is a mystery and a horror that defies description. And we're going to return to this and spend more time on it as we get closer to the end of his earthly life on the cross. But please remember the heart of the gospel. Jesus endured abandonment, loneliness, torture. He became sin who knew no sin. And he endured the father turning away from him, which is utter loneliness at a level that you and I could never fathom. No matter what you've been through, God has never turned his face away from you. But why did that have to happen? So that we would never have to walk alone. So that the father would never have to turn his face away from us so that we could be forgiven. Church, do you love Jesus? I hope you love him. I hope you can see him. The beautiful one, the Lamb of God, who at the darkest hour of his life is abandoned by even those who claim to love him, who walk this road utterly alone. He's the only one who could walk it for us. He walked it with resolve because he loved you and he loved me and he loved all of us sinful people. I love Jesus. 
And I thank God that he suffered that road alone for me. Now, following this very sober prediction, Jesus says the most ironic thing next in verse 33. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. It's hard to know what Jesus is referring to when he says these things, but I suspect Jesus is referring to the prediction of the disciples' desertion that he just mentioned. I'm telling you these things. I'm telling you that you are going to desert me, that you are going to scatter. And at the same time, he's already extending grace and forgiveness to them. He's telling them these things now, because if he didn't acknowledge that it was going to happen, and he didn't extend his grace and his love towards them now, later, they would be so crushed by their cowardice, so crushed by their abandonment, They'd be covered up in shame and despair, right? So he's telling them these things now so that they can come back into him, return to him, abide in him, and find peace. And I just want to point out something that I think transfers not just for the 11, but I think it transfers to you and me. Jesus anticipates failure amongst his disciples. You get that? I mean, he anticipates that that they will falter in their faith when times get tough, but he also anticipates that they will return to him. In fact, two things are in absolute certainty in what Jesus just said. Number one, the disciples will fall away, and number two, peace will be available for all of them in Jesus. You feel the tension? Peace is not just available for people who get everything right, who never have any doubts, who've never fallen away, who somehow ended up being like the perfect Christian people. There are no such people including your pastor. You know, I mean, we're going to have times where we fall flat on our face, where our faith fails, or we we chicken out. But listen, peace with Christ is not dependent on the strength of our faith or the virtue of our decisions. Peace with Christ is simply dependent on Christ. That's exactly what he just said. If we come to him with all of our mess, our failures, our sorrows, our disappointments, he has promised that we will find peace in him. The peace is dependent on him, not on us. And that's good news, amen? All right, let's turn to my last and very brief subheading, a prediction and a proclamation. So here at the end of his teaching ministry, Jesus concludes with a sobering prediction and then a proclamation. First, in verse 33, Jesus speaks truthfully of what his followers can expect. And this is just very plain spoken. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. Now, it goes without saying that life on earth includes some degree of tribulation for all people. But I think it's safe to say that Jesus is not referring to the regular run-of-the-mill pains of human existence that are common to all people. Instead, Jesus, I think, is clearly referring to the unique tribulation that comes upon those who seek to follow Jesus and live according to his teachings. We've already acknowledged that part of that tribulation is the certainty of, of loneliness, of feeling isolated, of, of not like I'm not of this world, like I feel like an alien in, in this world. That, that's part of being a, a follower of Jesus. It's a form of the tribulation that we experience. But there's many tribulations for the Christ follower in this world. Jesus makes it clear that our own families would experience division. And for many of us, this is one of the most painful tribulations that we deal with every day. 
Jesus also said that his church would experience significant and at times violent persecution. I mean, right now, you know, I think it's 17 Christian souls are being held for ransom in Haiti by a ruthless gang. That tribulation is directly attributable to their calling to follow Christ. All over the world, Christians experience untold tribulations due to their identification with Jesus. Jesus said, that's how it's going to be. And he wasn't wrong about that, and he certainly didn't overshoot, right? In this world, true followers of Christ will face many tribulations. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the last thing he said. After making his prediction, Jesus concludes with this proclamation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Jesus encourages disciples to be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. And that proclamation makes sense to us, right? We get that right now as people who are living in the 21st century looking back because we know that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death and ascended to the Father. But note, don't jump there yet. Listen to when he says these words. Take heart. I have overcome the world. He says it just before He is arrested just hours before he is brutally murdered on a Roman cross. You know, one commentator mused, if dying on a cross is overcoming the world, what would it have looked like if Jesus had lost the fight? I mean, how ironic is it that Jesus declares his victory over the world just hours before he is crucified by the world? That's a different kind of victory, isn't it? It's ironic, and it begs the question, how did Jesus overcome the world? I would submit to you that Jesus overcame the world in at least two ways, and there's probably more, but we're running out of time. Let me just touch on two things. We'll come back to this. First, as you reflect upon the life of Jesus, Jesus overcame the world by overcoming the temptations of this world. Remember that Jesus began his career tempted by Satan to reach out and take hold of the power and the riches and the goods that this world has to offer. And he resisted that. Remember that? But I want to remind you, church. I mean, don't think for a moment that Jesus was not tempted every day of his life. He was. He was a man. And I'm going to tell you something. If he wasn't tempted every single day, his obedience means nothing. Because obedience for us means resisting temptation. And so obedience for Jesus meant nothing less than that. Jesus was no doubt tempted to indulge, to use his power for his own benefit, to revel in the world's pleasures, or simply to take it easy, (laughs) you know, to, to take the easy path for once. But Jesus overcame the temptations of this world. Amen. Secondly, Jesus overcame the threats of this world. Uh, There was no small degree of threat and intimidation staring Jesus in the face in most of the towns to which he traveled. As you know, very powerful men had been plotting to kill Jesus for some time now, and Jesus knew that. But the threat of suffering, persecution, and even death did not dissuade Jesus from accomplishing the mission. The mission that the Father had given to him by sending him to take on flesh and redeem the world. Jesus overcame the temptations of the world and the threats of the world. The lust and the greed and and the appetites 
and that powerful intimidation of fear. He overcame all of that. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You see, victory over the world meant obedience to the Father. And it still does. Sadly, few of us have much hope of overcoming the world no matter how hard we try, right? I mean, like the 11 disciples here in John 16, a little faith is better than nothing, but when push comes to shove, many of us, you know, we find ourselves caving to temptations or, or shriveling back due to our fear, and we regularly feel conquered by the world. But take heart, church. Jesus did not tell us to have courage because we would overcome the world. Jesus told us to take heart and be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. Our victory is in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus fought the battle for us that we could never fight for ourselves. And as we place our trust in Jesus, as we abide in him, as we wrap our lives in his truth and fortify ourselves in the Holy Spirit, more and more every day, we will be able to resist both temptations and threats because of the victory of Jesus who lives in us, right? This is why John writes in 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our hope is not in our ability to be victorious over this world as if somehow we can do what Jesus did. We're not ever going to be able to do it. But when Jesus is in us, Jesus will accomplish it. He has conquered the world. He's overcome the world. And if Christ is in you, if Christ is in me, then we get to share in that victory. That victory is ours. We can claim it. And we have greater and greater victory over the temptations and threats of this world. So I just want to close and just say, church, take heart. The victory has been won. Though you will face many tribulations in this world, be of good cheer. For Jesus has overcome the world. Love Jesus. Believe Jesus. Pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Abide in him. And you will have his peace. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we close our service today, I I thank you for the encouragement that we find in your word. I thank you that you interceded for us. You walked that lonely road for us. You fought the evil prince of this world for us. You resisted temptation and fear. You were obedient even to death on a cross. And you rose again. You conquered death and you were exalted. And now the Father has given you a name that is above all name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess on the earth, under the earth, and above the earth. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we are so grateful. It is our confession. We find confidence and courage in looking to you. I pray that even as we feel knocked around by this world, that we will remember that you have overcome the world. And that we can find our peace, the deepest peace possible on this side of heaven. As we abide in you. As we understand that you live in us that you speak to us tenderly, that you continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us into the truth, that we know in a little while we'll get to see you, but even now that you see us and that you delight over us as your children, as those who belong to you. Lord, we love you. We love the name of Jesus. We believe Jesus to be the Son of God.
And we pray all these things in his name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.